0: The journalism industry is one that has virtually always existed in some state of upheaval. From the invention of the printing press to the digital revolution, journalistic practices have constantly had to evolve in order to maintain the attention of the audience. But the industry has come under increased scrutiny in recent years as political slants have become more common in news broadcasts, outlets have been bought up by private equity firms or Silicon Valley investors who want more editorial control. And terms like alternative facts or the fake news hashtag can make the audience question the legitimacy of reporting. I'm Erin Christalis, and on this episode of UNT Pod, I'm joined by three lecturers from UNT's Mayborn School of Journalism for a roundtable discussion on the state of journalism and what the future may hold for the industry.
1: My name is Jacqueline Fellows. I'm a visiting lecturer here at the University of North Texas' uh, Mayborn School of Journalism. I have been a journalist for about 20 years. Uh, half that time I was at the NPR station in Nashville as a reporter and a producer and their morning edition host. And I still free- freelance for them sometimes. And after I left NPR, I worked at a, uh, a healthcare news media organization that was bought out by private equity groups three times while I was there. And over the course of my career, really saw exactly what we're talking about today, which is consolidation of media, the effect it has on newsrooms and diversity, and um, so I'm excited to be able to, to share those opinions with my esteemed colleagues.
2: Hi, I'm Randy Loftus, I'm a lecturer here at the Mayborn School of Journalism. I uh, was a, a journalist for the uh, Dallas Morning News for 26 years, covering the environment. Uh, before that, I was did the same uh, job for a number of years at the Miami Herald. And uh, prior to that, I was uh, a reporter and editor of every conceivable stripe at a small newspaper in South Carolina. Uh, I continue to uh, do some freelance uh, uh, reporting. And uh, one of my uh, uh, favorite posts is I'm a senior editor at a small nonprofit called Texas Climate News. And perhaps we can talk something about uh, uh, the growth of nonprofit news organizations today.
3: Excellent. I'm Neil Foote, a principal lecturer here at the Mayborn School of Journalism. Uh, like Randy, our paths actually crossed at the Miami Herald uh, back in the day. Uh, so I cut my teeth here at the Miami Herald, uh, worked at the Washington Post. And have had kind of a hybrid uh, of an industry, working uh, in and for the industry, uh, working on the digital side of the Dallas Morning News, helping them launch their digital operations, and then uh, working for radio personality Tom Joyner and launching all of his online uh, operations uh, to you know complement his huge radio audience. Uh, along the way, been teaching here at the Mayborn for the last twelve years, and continue to consult with clients on public relations, branding, communications issues.
0: So first off, thank you all for joining me today. The first thing I'd like to talk about is Deadspin. So for listeners who don't know, Deadspin is a news site that was established in the mid-2000s that primarily covered sports, but would also occasionally publish stories about pop culture, politics, or other topics the editorial team thought their audience might be interested in. Deadspin was part of a suite of sites that was known as Gizmodo Media Group before they were sold to the private equity firm Great Hill Partners in April 2019. On October 28, 2019, the entire Deadspin editorial staff was sent a memo from upper management that essentially said, stick to sports. They were not to run any non-sports content on the site. The next day, three distinctly non-sports stories were posted to the homepage. As a result, the interim editor-in-chief, who was serving in the position after the previous editor-in-chief resigned over similar conflicts with management, was fired, which led to the entire editorial team of about 20 people resigning immediately. At a time when newsrooms are quite often facing layoffs and budget cuts, can you talk about
1: the significance of a move like this? When the editorial staff of Deadspin walked out, I really felt like this might be a turning point. And uh, of some kind, maybe not a major turning point, but when we look back into how our industry has changed, this might be a turning point where the workers say, well, in reaction, we're finally going to stand up against, uh, you know, private equity groups or, you know, these venture capitalists who come in and leave tons of bodies in their their wake. Um, Because there's like, when I worked for Health Leaders Media, we had three different owners in a matter of five years and they were private equity groups who were coming and churning and burning and you know basically grabbing the profits and trying to sell it off to somebody else who hadn't quite figured out mm-hmm. that they could grab those margins too um so i sort of wonder if the editorial staff walking out was a turning point even though they walked out for editorial reasons um which i don't know if you want to get into that but i i do wonder if it's a turning point what do you guys think
3: well you know it's it's a tricky time right so from a business standpoint, which you, you you says, well, how do we how do we save the industry from layoffs? Well, who has the money? And it's more than likely, as we've seen, some guy named Jeff Bezos, <laughs> you know, uh, biotech engineers uh, buying Time magazine and L.A. Times, and uh, you know I think Jack, Jacqueline kind of gets to the point that you know. Uh, some of these news organizations are now going to be owned, which is kind of actually back to where it was in the original time by billionaire, your business people who think this is just kind of a fun sort of thing to do to own media because right. that's that's kind of part of being a great mogul. Which then kind of says, well, how yeah, you know, how does yeah? You know, the dead spin example kind of gets into now this other thing of where does political speak and coverage of a politically charged time when, you know, sports and politics have always crossed. Uh, Just go back to 68, right? (laughs) Uh, But it's even more sensitive now when suddenly uh, anything that we might say in this podcast could suddenly be excerpted and pushed out on social and you know, a million of Randy's friends are suddenly, you know, spamming him and flaming him because... I wish I had a million friends. Yeah, well, well yeah. You know, <laughs> suddenly it becomes an issue right. uh, when it wasn't before because, you know, to a certain extent it was a tree in a forest, If it's, you know... How many stories did Randy and I write that we never got a letter, an email, a comment from an, a boss or an, an editor who just came by and said, "Basically, what else you got for me today?" Exactly. Uh, now that story suddenly is is in you know it's global news, uh, and that and that's the tricky part between your billionaire interest to help reinvest in the industry and politically sensitive times where the slightest thing said wrong or um, or could be seen as. Uh, counterintuitive to our investors um, is now an issue of just just talk sports. Just talk sports. You
1: know, that issue, that tension has always been there, though. You know, the tension between, like, the editorial side and the business side, especially in newspapers, which I'm sure you, you both can speak to more than I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tension has always been there, right? So what makes it different is that the news model is not working, that advertising classified, those revenues. It's not sustaining it anymore, and so that leads to this, well, like today, as we speak, they're voting on that merger, Gannett and New Media Group, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes the largest media company by print circulation, and it's, it, it, the tension's always been there, but the stakes maybe weren't as high. We well,
2: you know, one of the things that's happened with the atomization of journalism, going away from gigantic interests controlling everything, is that when you have a lot of startups coming up, if the entire staff of, of Deadspin walks out... Many of them, the brightest of them, are probably going to have some kind of gig pretty shortly. Uh, In the 1950s, if the entire newsroom of a New York daily newspaper had walked out, there were six or seven other dailies in town that might, might hire them. If it happened today, there's no one else really to hire them. So in the traditional industry, but in the digital industry, it's so fluid, things come and go, you know, students today are not, they are, I think, fully aware that they're not going to pick an employer and work for that employer for 30 years and collect a pension and then, and then go to Florida. They're going to be doing one thing for three years, something else for five years, and they may be radically different each time they change. They have a lot more freedom in that sense. So the entrepreneurial aspect of this really opens new doors and I think maybe empowers people like the staff of Deadspin to walk out, realizing something's going to come up there.
0: Right. You know, the events at Deadspin, they, they do really directly tie into the rising unionization of newsrooms over the past few years. Um, so back in 2015, reporters at Deadspin and sister sites like Gawker and Jezebel voted to unionize, uh, making them one of the first major websites to do so. Uh, this set off a wave of unionization in both digital and legacy newsrooms across the country. What's your take on this trend of newsrooms unionizing and how it might affect the industry?
3: Sure. Well, yes, it's an interesting concept because it's you know we've all probably have experiences of. Uh, uh, I mean, when I was at the Miami Herald, there was no union, right? That, when, is, yeah. that is very correct. And then I moved from a place like the Miami Herald to the Washington Post that had heavy guild. Uh, Engagement uh, and, and sitting in meetings, you know, where it was, you know, not only uh, reporters, but, you know, trying to negotiate aggressively with management to get fair wages. So to, to see this extended on in the digital news world is is a natural extension. Uh, and you know, again, disruption is kind of the operative term in this conversation here. But I think that the the funny thing is, is when the discussion of online comes up, it's like, oh, well, that's so different than what traditional news organizations do. No, the same issues actually arise. And quite honestly, for online and digital media, it's probably even worse because there's a presumption that, oh, well, there's no real print deadline. So you could just write the story whenever you're free and whenever it happens, whether it's between nine and five or midnight and 5 a.m. So you know providing protection for you know reporters uh you know at a time when potentially abuse could be taken uh by by editors publishers owners just because of the news cycle is a, is a rising concern uh, in all sorts of ways you know certainly i think the dead spin issue and some of the others have other political implications that i'm sure we'll get into further in the conversation you know one of the things that's happening is that People assume that there is a different
2: type of employee who is working for a digital organization. And in some cases, they might be right because you're going to have uh, some younger people. You're going to have people who will not object to being asked to work 60 hours a week and write six stories a day, whereas older workers might say, no, I'm not doing that. But that's the growth area of the industry right now. So we are facing a new kind of institutional challenge in how we protect the basic workplace rights of new digital workers uh, in the same way that they've been recognized for conventional workers since the 1930s.
1: I would just echo what Neil and Randy had to say. NPR is a union shop. Um, The individual member stations may or may not be union shops, but I think it is a natural extension of media. And for all of the talk about this side gig economy, frankly, News reporters and freelancers. That side gig has been part of the ecosystem of news media, and news reporting for decades. So it really is a natural extension.
0: Well, I'm wondering too because you you mentioned Jeff Bezos and of course the Washington Post, and you know we're talking about Deadspin in the sense of a private equity firm buying them up. But there's a big difference between Deadspin and a legacy newspaper like the Washington Post. So I'm wondering if you're seeing a difference in how media coverage is, you know, when, when legacy newspapers versus these more up-and-coming publications are, are bought by people in industry?
1: I think it depends. I mean, look at the Denver Post, look at Sports Illustrated, look at LA Weekly. Those are major legacy news organizations that were brought up by private equity groups and slashed and burned, and in some cases, a shell of what they used to be. But you get somebody like Bezos who buys the Washington Post, and, I mean, their coverage is incredible, mm-hmm. right? Their coverage is incredible. So I don't, I don't know that there's a single lesson to be learned there, um, that there's nuance. It depends on who owns it. It depends on what they believe, you know, the role of journalism to be. That's my take. Um, that's my take in general. Well,
0: is that something you talk about with students too, not just the industry itself but also the people who are in – in charge technically of these organizations?
3: Well, you know, the, the, the uh, I mean, a couple points. Yes, we talk about it with students all the time because for us, um, you know, and I tell my students all the time, I say, look, I'd love for you to follow the path I did because it's been a wonderful journey, but that's not the path you're going to run, you're going to lead anymore. In fact, I'm kind of envious of you all because they're now potentially 12 different paths that I could possibly have considered in 1981 that you all now have to consider. Is it more daunting and frightening that, well, you know, yeah, I could apply to a newspaper, and, you know, 20 newspapers, and at least I'd get three offers. Well, now I could apply to 20 newspapers, not even hear back, but I could have three offers for some digital startup. Or, you know, hang a shingle and say, hey, look, I love covering environment. Hey Randy, you need some pieces? Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. So that's that's kind of exciting on one end, you know. But you know, fundamentally though, which is yeah, you know, the challenge we face every day with students is getting them to understand that ethically and fundamentally, they shouldn't kind of think that oh, because I'm on a in a dot com, that suddenly I can throw away all that those those basic ethics and right. and report and write or suddenly slip in a little opinion or a dig at it. you know if we're talking about sports you know dig at a player when it's kind of like well where did that come from when you're talking about what happened at the game or you're doing an analysis of who the best players are so i mean i think that's where yeah, is there change in a sea change of what's acceptable because the lines are blurred in part of what is acceptable and what is journalism because of social media? It's kind of changed that. So, you know, hey, you know, he, he posted that this player was a jerk. So I just included that in my story. I said, well, that's nice. But did you talk to the player? Did you talk to the coach? Did you talk to his agent or manager? No, because this guy, this fan posted it. Well, that's. That's not the journalism. We, at least we stand for, and we're trying to change that now. You know how that goes to the third layer. Of this that says, well, in an era of clicks translates to views that translates into dollars. That then, guess what? Push it. You know. You know. So I don't know. Again, I I can't verify that this is happening in news organizations or so more than dot com and than what's happening maybe even in traditional organizations, but yeah you know, the metrics are driving a lot of what gets you know attention.
1: yeah, and the consolidation that we see, like Jeff Bezos, he stands out for the commitment that he's given the Washington Post journalists, I think, because everywhere we see consolidation, we don't see ex- we don't see an expansion of news coverage. You see that shrinking, I mean physically and in, in news. I mean look at Gannett. Look at all of the look at all of the small the not even small the major dailies that Gannett has bought and they look mm. like shoppers. they look like daily shoppers now. Mm. Um, I think about Randy Randy run you had mentioned you run a nonprofit. you're right for this nonprofit, Texas Climate News. like he won't toot his own horn, but he is a phenomenal environmental reporter. And when you have media consolidation, what leaves in addition to all of the employees right is institutional knowledge, is institutional memory. And the deep, deep reporting dives that you're able to take over decades, and then they go to, you know te- is it Texas climate Texas right. climate news? Um, so you know it's it's very fluid, it's very challenging. I, I with you, Neil, I, I envy some of our students' opportunities. I look at what Randy has done with Texas climate news and being able to dedicate space and time to that because it's so important. But media consolidation has led to. I mean, not just a shrinking of the newsroom, but a shrinking of news literacy.
2: There has been quite a growth in nonprofits. Um, Some of them have become really well known. Uh, ProPublica uh, is one of them. Uh, Here in Texas, we have Texas Tribune. Uh, All over the country, there are uh, nonprofit news organizations that have sprouted up. And some of them have roots in kind of an activist. Agenda, but they have matured beyond that. Others of them were begun from the get-go as an attempt to fill in the gaps left by the shrinkage of traditional media. Uh, this is the probably the percentage-wise, it's the biggest growth area in American journalism right now. The um, everybody I write for, uh, half a dozen outlets from time to time, uh, except for one or two, are nonprofits, and they didn't exist 15 years ago. So this is, um, uh, and this is uh, one of the ways we are devoting a lot of attention to, uh, to really in-depth stories that maybe weren't even being covered during the days of, of the best of the legacy media. So, you know, there is a confusion among the public when we say the industry is suffering. What we're saying is the old economic model of journalism is suffering. Uh, and the employment numbers are, are down. There's, there's no question about that. But in terms of the enterprise of journalism and aggressive reporting, uh, we have a lot of reasons to be very optimistic at this point because we're seeing a lot of things happen that uh, didn't happen in the past because these organizations have been freed from the need to please uh, and provide profits for shareholders.
0: Mm-hmm. But would you say that's one of the biggest maybe misconceptions about modern journalism, because I feel like there's always this idea of, oh, you're going to journalism school, but how are you going to find a job? Um, And you're talking about, you know, there are so many different paths. So I'm wondering if that is an attitude that you feel like you run up against pretty frequently.
3: Well, you know, I feel with every class and every student that comes before us that we we have to arm them with with good information uh, to take back home. Because I think the, the 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 reality is, I'm sure their parents are asking the same questions you just raised. There, really, sweetie, journalism? Are you, you, know, are you yeah? You gonna find a job? You know, we'll support you as long as you can. But you know, good luck. And and I think our job is yeah to to provide the realistic landscape, but also uh, to prepare them yeah, you know, which is why. I mean, uh, you know, we, we uh, we've got Jacks doing a podcasting class, and and Randy's not only doing public affairs, but doing you know criticism. I'm teaching media entrepreneurship and business journalism, so we're trying to get, expose them to different ways that they can channel their expertise into areas that, as I alluded to before, that yeah you know, did not exist before, or can be translated into opportunities within. Legacy organizations, because you know the, the sad reality is that as some of us uh, uh, veterans have you know had to move on and out of the newsrooms, it's actually created opportunities for many of our students um, at you know news organizations in and around Dallas and elsewhere. Because wow, okay, this is these kids are talented and they're I know and well, unfortunately they're cheaper, but they're it can accomplish us and. They they're just as adept of doing social and capturing some audio and taking a picture and sharing it than than some of uh you know our colleagues now is like I I look I came up in the industry writing a story and, and you edit it and I'll make the changes and you publish it. That's what I do. So so that's kind of the dynamic that's happening there that, that goes to your original question is, is we gotta arm them with, with good information, prepare them with the right skills. Um, and then, kind of, you know, pr- you know, help them kind of navigate through a, a world where it's not as easy finding a job as it used to be.
1: And show them the bright spots. I mean, Francie's right. There are bright spots here. Nonprofit journalism is one of them. Like you had, he had mentioned ProPublica, Texas Tribune. They're hiring. I think about two dozen people right now. Uh, public radio stations, not just the NPR like the Mothership in Washington D.C., but public radio stations have added 1,000 jobs over the last five years. They're expected to add 1,000 more in the next two years. And um, at the local television news stations continue to hire. So there are bright spots. We've got to show our students those. And the different organizations that come to recruit our students, either for scholarships or for internships, they're investing in them. You know. So there are jobs, but, yeah, I do think there might be that perception.
3: Yeah, no. and I and I'm looking at this. This is a New York Times story on their their digital revenue for 2018, and here's a line from the story. This was from February of this year. Last year, the company added 120 newsroom employees, bringing the total journalists at the Times to 1,600, the largest count in its history. So here's the 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 old old. Uh, New York Times that you know uh, that you know certainly is trying to, to figure out how it navigates its ways. All the news is fit to print, and now realizes it's all the news is fit to digital, right? <laughs> and <laughs> to print, print, right? Online, yeah. But the digital revenue has exceeded the print revenue, uh, which you know hopefully casts some wins at smaller pubs, nonprofits, yeah. and others who are kind of committed to the values, which I, I think. You know, what does it say? Yeah, you the know, New York Times has billions of dollars. They can do that, right? But I think that the point is, you know, what does a small nonprofit journalism organization offer folks is, well, at the end of the day, I think most readers and viewers and listeners are looking for credible information, probably more so than ever, uh, from credible sources. And so that's where, uh, you know, the notion of a dying industry, yeah, is it changing Course, we could show you charts and all the, but the, the other end of it says is, there's is, is still a greater thirst and demand for information, probably more than ever.
0: Yeah. So, you guys have already talked quite a bit about nonprofit uh, publications, and kind of on that same note, the Salt Lake Tribune recently uh, became the first daily newspaper in the country to be granted nonprofit status by the IRS. So, I'm wondering, how do you see that? Maybe further impacting an industry that's already kind of seeing an increase in nonprofit media outlets.
1: Personally, I think it's great. I think this is where the future of journalism is. I really do. Um, because as someone who has worked in public media and worked for a nonprofit, the culture is different. The culture is different mm-hmm. in, a nonprofit, in a nonprofit newsroom, in a nonprofit organization. Um, And the business model is different. You're not appeasing your shareholders and your stakeholders. Your community members, your subscribers are part of that community. And I think Neil is right. There's a a thirst, a hunger for credible news organizations. And the two most well-known public... Media organizations, probably NPR and PBS have been around since the 70s. There are others, though. Center for, Inter- uh, Center for Investigative Reporting also launched in the 70s. Um, they have that cachet of being reliable and trusted. If you look at Pew news reports over the last, I think, like five or six years, they're always like some of the most credible news sources. Um, and I think it comes from that commitment to the community, not to the shareholders. So, I, I mean, I personally, I think it's great. I think it pretends well for the industry if it's successful. If it's not, then it's going to be, you know, one more thing that, well, this, we tried this, legacy newspapers tried it, and it didn't work. Um, I'm just wondering how long they're going to let it go before they see uh, success and say this is the benchmark we were hoping for and not looking for big successes in a short period of time
2: it's a it's a somewhat different model than the other nonprofit newspaper which is the Tampa Bay Times formerly the St. Petersburg Times they're owned by the Pointer Institute which is a a nonprofit foundation that does journalism education as every foundation they have investments they have to grow an endowment et cetera. and so they have found like everybody else when the stock market uh, or when the value of their investments goes goes down they have to cut staff. They have to cut back like everybody else does. The Salt Lake City model is a little different. They don't seem to be as closely tied to the greater uh, uh, financial picture of how investments are doing. So I think it's a, it's, it's a more hopeful sign. I think we can't have all the newspapers owned uh, indirectly by the same investment houses where you make your money anyway. If it's a community asset... Uh, That makes a big difference. Newspapers made their local reputations by being community assets, not by being for-profit companies. Their editorial stance has always been, we are a voice of the community, we are representing your best interests. Uh, That's something not every business can say. And so for the Salt Lake City example is very much along those lines. It's taking that editorial rhetoric of, we are a community asset, we are part of your life and really putting it much more explicitly, saying, not only are we representing your interests, we are one with your interests. So I think that's a really hopeful sign.
3: And if and if you look at uh the you know, Texas Tribune which celebrated its tenth year, last year they, they they have they kind of laid out their strategic plan, which they've never done, you know. <laughs> And what they want to be in the next ten years, and and um, you know the, the, what they learn, you know is some of these fundamentals of how community drives journalism and how you know they've evolved in that way, but they also you know, have had to evolve in a business model that now is almost an NPR type model where it's, it's membership driven. So they have to provide value for their members, and then they've also had to figure out oh part of Driving members is doing events that drive awareness, uh, that's built off great coverage, but also positions the Texas Tribune in, in the in the middle of all these conversations going on politically around the state, and then now doing you know partnerships with ProPublica and other uh, other traditional media organizations. It realizes well that's how you know if you look at the uh, and I think it's going to be a model that will be looked at very carefully over time. That says you know how do you build a Nonprofit model that leverages the risk of the markets and donors invest in quality coverage but then also kind of has some hybrid things that in, you know, drive technology and kind of new school approaches to storytelling but also traditional Let's, get, let's, let's, take, uh, let's do what newspapers and news organizations did. It's kind of that town crier, town square. Let's sit down and get people into a hall and talk with politicians and leaders, and we want to be this. The, the news organization will be the leader in helping to drive a civil conversation in the civil society. And
2: so branding may maybe more important uh, in an uncertain nonprofit world than it is uh, when you're guaranteed an income. You, know, you don't worry so much about branding. Uh, when you're fighting for every dollar, uh, that becomes pretty important.
1: It'll be really interesting to see how the Salt Lake Tribune manages to make the leap from this legacy news organization that had subscribers. I, will, I don't want to say treated subscribers differently, but now those subscribers become members, and that's a membership model that you're talking about mm-hmm. that NPR has, that the Texas Tribune has. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they make that leap. Because the other nonprofit organizations started in non- their native nonprofit organizations, they grew up with that public service mission. But I think what could work in salt lake's example is journalism has that same public service mission like. The stockholders on the other end of the you know on the other end of the building might not you know they're looking at something different but journalism has its roots in public service and so I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they make that leap i'm I'm hopeful though i really i really am hopeful yeah well,
3: it's it's kind of uh I don't know, like a better phrase ironic right because what's what's driving digital revenue and is in, in subscriptions is really What's in it for me? Strategy, right? So yeah. newspapers, which and and you know, in TV stations and broadcast outlets, you know, have never really as Randy said have felt that they've had to market themselves aggressively to say, "Here's our value," and here's why, you know, you know, look at the 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 uh, you know the, the uh, New York Times ads that are running on cable, and you know, you know, look at what CNN is trying to do just to validate itself as a legitimate organization. But this 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 notion of we've got to build value for our subscribers and our and whether it's members or subscribers, and guess what we have to build value to an audience that, uh, admittedly, certainly for newspaper subscribers is is yeah they they've done the actuarial charts to show you know the average age of a traditional reader is somewhere in the. Yeah, you know, late mid to late fifties, early sixties. And so if you do the math on that, then then the economics doesn't seem too well. So they've got to drive audience, which I, I think a lot of these news organizations are realizing is in that kind of thirty five to fifty range, which is in between millennial, in between boomer, not quite Gen Z, whatever demo you wanna label it, that says, Oh, this is not quite digital native, not quite you know really grown up in a household where media was big but that's kind of the the big audience that I think we'll see a lot more news organizations try to, to figure out and certainly in the in this market you know it's not is it's no no stranger to the morning news and its huge huge campaign is what does dallas you know what does news mean to you and why does it matter right that that's a very conscious campaign to try to get all of us to see what matters and look at the analytics and figure out how we drive coverage to audiences that either were engaged with us previously that left us uh, or that we can maybe gain some new audience.
0: It's always fun to have that core reader conversation, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring up membership versus subscribers um, because, of course, as someone who worked at NPR, I feel like you think of NPR and you think of the membership drives. Um, So I'm wondering, you know, in your experience there, did you see more of a buy-in?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was really odd because I didn't think there'd be much of a difference. I really didn't. I was new. I was young. I was excited to be working in news. Um, And I had heard and turned off almost every membership campaign that I had heard growing up and as an adult. And when I was on the air and we had to participate in them, I thought, well, this will be, I was, of course, open to it. I always loved the mission of public journalism, but I really was not sure what my reaction would be if it would make a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. And I think that's why I'm so hopeful, I think, for the Salt Lake Tribune model, Mm -hmm. because the people who contribute, even if it's, and now I'm going to sound like I'm on a membership campaign. <laughs> Even if they contribute five dollars a month, you really do feel that buy-in, and you you do like we heard from people over and over who made that first or second contribution. Um, they really do feel like they're part of the community, and they really do feel like they're part of the coverage that they're hearing, um, whether it's you know the local news or it's a podcast now, or if it's their favorite you know Morning Edition or All Things Considered or, or whatever it is they do feel like they're part of it and there is more buy-in. And generally, you know, journalism at a nonprofit is not really different than journalism in a for-profit. The news process is the same. Um, And we were, you know, we had the same uh, ups and downs with the stock markets as well because of the endowment. Um, But we also were subject to here's what listeners want, you know, that, that demographic information that you get in a regular newsroom. And um, generally, the, the members were more engaged. And I think that's, like, reason number two that I'm hopeful this model in, Saint Tr- in uh, Salt Lake will work is because they tend to be more engaged consumers, they tend to be more engaged listeners, news consumers, more media literate. Which is it's just it's something that's definitely really really needed right now. But you know, yeah, that's,
2: that's something that uh, National Geographic realized decades ago. When you subscribe to the to the National Geographic magazine, you are a member of the National Geographic Society. Exactly. So? You're not just getting a magazine; you are now part of an enterprise, and that's really important to their entire business model. Uh, I've written for for Nat Geo, and I know that the the uh, the editing process is extremely rigorous. For the exact reason that people are invested in this project, it's not just something that comes and they toss it aside. People save them in in basements for fifty years. <laughs> so the uh, uh, the recognition that that membership uh, identity is different from a customer identity is really critical to nearly every nonprofit outfit you can think of.
0: You know. Obviously, in 2019, it's hard to have a conversation about journalism without also in some way talking about politics. Um, For example, clearly, a lot of media outlets have been labeled as fake news um, by the current administration. And so, you know, whether or not you agree with that viewpoint, there are, of course, media outlets that do seem to have clear political agendas or, or side with one, you know, side of the aisle versus the other Um, So I'm wondering, you know, with the 2020 election, now less than a year away, how can people find news sources that they can trust to report facts and not
1: so much opinions? Oh boy. Is this a part two? (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, (laughs) I mean, just because somebody says that you're fake news does not mean you're fake news. Um, The trust in media overall is down. There's, you know, there's no doubt about that when it comes to finding news that you can rely on, they're the same sources that we've been reading. It's the Washington Post, it's the Dallas Morning News, it's those NPR, these other nonprofit legacy organizations and new nonprofits. It's being able to recognize when you're reading an editorial versus an opinion. I mean, some of this is really just back to basics and not reacting to the latest Twitter tantrum.
0: Well, do you think part of it, too, is, is that it comes down to maybe not reading, that so many people are relying on cable, you know, on, on television news versus, like you're saying, those kind of
1: more traditionally reliable print sources? I wonder if people are even reading headlines more than headlines.
2: I have uh, a proposal for, uh, for Facebook <clears throat> that no one should be allowed to comment on a post unless they've actually opened the thing and read it, and make the uh, make the computer measure that you've spent five minutes reading the thing, and then you can comment on it because people are just reading. Now, we've always known people just read the headlines. I mean, that's that's not news. But now they can respond to that instantaneously. So we really, now that's I, I, I joke about about making you read the thing first. But part of this is uh, media literacy education for the public. Part of our duty, ought to uh, is to uh, is to help people understand how to interpret what they what they read and hear and see. And there are just like when uh, a computer security expert can tell you how to spot a phishing email, we can tell people how to spot a fake news story, how to spot something that's just meant to make you mad, and you know, that's something that we could do. It's it's part of our expertise, and you know we need to find a way to make sure that we can uh, uh, let people know, hey, we've got something to contribute here. We can actually uh, uh, probably uh, uh, make you a, a, a smarter uh, uh, consumer of news and maybe lower your blood pressure at the same time.
3: Yeah, you know, we we've got to question everything. I mean that that's a fundamental concept. We certainly teach our students, but. Overall, I mean, for, for news organizations, yeah, uh, you know, my wife's a retired journalist. I don't know how many times we throw stuff at TV <laughs> when the journalist just doesn't ask a fundamentally basic question like, why, mm-hmm. tell me more, explain. That's the same question we as consumers of news need to ask too. So whatever the news outlet, whatever your flavor of the month is, you, you, me—we all have a responsibility to get good information, and it, you know, because um, we rely on that information to make decisions about our lives, uh, how it's going to shape politics and income, and 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 programs and, that that affect generations, and that that to me should be a simple fundamental. I, I tell my students, you know what? As a journalist, you need to channel your five and six-year-old self and ask that why question, right? Why? 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 That's okay, because if the source is going to get mad at you for asking why, then then, that's, then, then you know, they, whether you're a public official, a business owner, whoever that is, you know, should understand that that's okay, for, and, and, and I hope uh, and and I think Randy hits it is that you know we have to take that mantle as media professors, as media organizations to say we will stand behind the ability that all of us should ask questions. You should challenge the New York Times. You should challenge the Washington Post. You should challenge Fox and MSNBC and and Limbaugh and Breitbart. We need to challenge all of them because you know what's 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 going to happen is shaping. And framing the way we think about issues and how the world thinks about issues. And, you know, we could all spend another podcast talking about how media and, and history and politics and politicians and leaders have shaped, you know, propaganda-type campaigns based on calling the media fake news and, and disinf- you, know, you know, ministers of disinformation – that's all Malagi, and we've seen how negatively that's affected you know governments beyond the us and fortunately, we've always had checks and balances to do that, and we have to continue to do that but that's a that's a long way to say that 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 I hope it inspires generations of people now and beyond to just be curious and not accept whether it's on social yeah, I, I, last point I was I teach media entrepreneurship was and I, I am excited that one of the students is come up with an app to try to figure out how do we embed a trust indicator on stories uh, and some kind of algorithm that helps people figure out, well, wait, there's only one source in this, and that source is actually the same source who's working for the organization that actually sent out the press release. Oh, what's wrong with this story? Oh, well, there's obviously it's a press release. Yeah, so those, Yeah, I was encouraged, it's like, okay, that's a generation that's moving forward that's thinking that way, then you know, let's embrace that. Let's invest in that. Let's find a good private equity group. <laughs> that's <right. laughs> but that's kind of where we are, and it's it's going to be a scary time, particularly you know, with impeachment hearings happening, and and we are about to go into a, a very interesting mode of media and politics. That there'll be books written about this period. Uh, we'll be teaching about this. Uh, and and how we get it right is is going to be critical in how we put the context to make sure it's it's understood what's going on.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean that really kind of ties in with with the question I had in terms of how challenging is it to convey that lesson of media literacy to the general public? Because you know, in a university environment, it makes sense. I mean, people are here and. and maybe have more of a tendency to question things, but you know, if you have people out there who are kind of blocking themselves off to a spectrum of media coverage, how do you try to, you know, insert that lesson into maybe their, their daily reading or watching habits?
2: You know, we have, journalism is kind of based on the enlightenment. That when given enough information, People will be able to sort through it and they will separate the good from the bad and they'll, they'll settle on something. More recent psychological research shows that people tend to embrace assertions, not even facts, but just assertions of fact that correspond to their core beliefs and reject other things, So, which makes it a lot harder to be a neutral distributor of information and hope that people make the right choice. But we can't lose faith because of that. We have to keep doing what we do. Um, If it's very unpopular among a doctor's patients for the patients to take their blood pressure medicine, that doesn't mean the doctor gives up prescribing and urging them to take their blood pressure medicine. We have to keep on doing what we do. We can't uh, uh, help democracy by backing away from that core belief. I used to read where uh, uh, people would say, you know, all journalists are biased and it's it's just a human nature thing, so why not go ahead and admit it? Why not go ahead and state in your story, here's how I feel about this? And to me, it's like, would you ask a judge to say at the beginning of a trial, now, I don't like this guy, so I just want you to know from the get-go, so I'll be honest about it. I think the guy is guilty. That's not acceptable it's not acceptable for us either. We have to maintain um, some allegiance to fact, even if uh, vast waves of the public is uh, screaming at each other. At some point, we have to be the people saying, well, here's, here's, here's a rational basis for how you might think.
3: And there are tools that can be made available to the public, whether if, they, if they're readers or not. I think we're seeing a lot more conscious efforts Certainly in public radio, certainly in, in in online news sites, say, here here's the original document. Read it for yourself. I mean, here's what we reported, and click and read. Yeah, you know, which is I think a very fundamental to your original question: How do we get people to you know to consumers of news and information to accept well, what is it true? Provide the original access to the original documents, and again, that's always open to interpretation. But the fact of the matter is. Yeah, ninety-nine point nine percent of what's out there uh, you know, is is what we report, and and t- to the point of sources who provide us valid information or not. Again, it's our duty to challenge them uh, you know, at at every step along the way, uh, and how we frame that, whatever that source perspective they're coming from, is our duty to make sure we. We do that better than anyone else than the person on the street. And that, that's what our responsibility is to, to, to that extent of what's the difference between Joe Blogger, who's going to talk about what happened in the impeachment hearings as opposed to what NPR, or the Post, or the Times, or a legitimate news source. That's going to be the difference in how this coverage stands out.
1: And I take comfort in knowing that no matter how many people will rally against, you know, enemy of the people or fake news, that we have one of the only jobs that is enshrined in the Constitution, and that's the freedom of the press. And it's a fundamental part of our democracy. And so I'm like, Randy, like, I know I sound really hopeful about this, you know, Salt Lake Tribune nonprofit model, but it is, it is hard it is hard to be a journalist right now. It's, hard, it's not hard to be a fan of journalism right now, but it's difficult to sit and watch all of the really challenging things that are happening to it. But I do, I, I'm like, well, it's enshrined in the Constitution. I mean, it's, you know, it's there.
3: And the question I, I raise, because again, we all have friends who probably challenge, challenge us over dinner conversations Absolutely. and drinks about, well, what do you do? What are you trying to do? And, and I do this with students. I do this. I say, so, well, let, let's play out this scenario. And, we, we, you know, if all the local TV outlets shut down, if all the local newspapers shut down, and then what information would you rely on and get, on learning about what's going on? And are you okay with that? So no Fox, no CNN, no no ABC, NBC, CBS, no no Wash Post, no New York Times, just whatever we receive. Is that okay with you? And people are well, no, we can't have that. So I, I mean, I think fundamentally the you know when it gets down to your point, Jacqueline, you said people really do want legitimate information, and it's it's yeah you know, we get your people can get caught up, but when when you strip it down. Then we could show the map of world press freedom around, you know, that shows that, you know, unfortunately, three quarters of this world has no world press freedom, has no press freedom. That what we have is probably, uh, to Randy's point, is what democracy kind of was built on uh, and why it's okay to have discourse uh, and and political discourse. you yeah, know, aggressive discourse on, on uh, the stories of the day and the issues of the day, and that's okay. There's a thing
2: going around among journalists that says, uh, first they came for the journalist, but I was not a journalist, so I said nothing. And then we have no idea what happened after that.
1: I love that. I mean, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm wondering,
0: to conclude, um, if you would be willing to share maybe a moment from your own career that most made you realize the importance of what you do, um, either as a journalist or as an academic?
1: I think I was in it for so long that it would be hard to pick one moment. There were a lot of little moments that reaffirmed that this was the right thing for me to do. I lived in Nashville when we had a pretty devastating flood, and there was a small smallish um, immigrant community who lived in an apartment complex that was near where a river flooded, and the landlords were not letting uh, the people who were affected move. And when I say affected, their, the floodwaters reached all the way up to the second story. So they had first-story apartments had completely been flooded. Their, their cars were not working. And um, you know that's an example of you know giving voice to people who don't have that much power because they were largely none of them could speak English or a lot of them could had difficulty speaking English, and so it was a situation where like a landlord was taking advantage of a group of people, and that really stuck with me. I was a part of the Capitol Hill press corps in Tennessee when I worked in Nashville, and I remember. All of the different individual bills that we could passed or debated and seeing just people regular people from those communities that were affected come up and speak on behalf um, of a bill or speak out against a bill, I did a lot of health reporting and a lot of military reporting because Nashville's not very far from Fort Campbell, and so it's really it's hard to pick out one particular moment that was like, "Yes, this is why I should be here." Um, It was a lot of the individual moments where I got to meet people and got a chance to give them some airtime or got a chance to give them an opportunity to tell their story that they might not have gotten before. And that made me a better journalist, and I don't know that I really knew that when I first got into journalism. I mean, I knew what our ethics were, I knew what we were bound to do, and I, I knew that it was you know, speaking truth to power, giving voice to the voiceless, and shining a light in dark corners. I knew all of those things, but to see it in action and see how people's lives were changed even just a little bit simply by the act of having someone listen to them, that's probably the moment, those moments, that made it not just worth it, but know that I was doing the right thing and that journalists can make a difference.
2: You know, with me, I learned really early in my career that, Journalism really is a matter of of communication between people and people. Um, I was a city kid from Atlanta, um, had farmers in my background, but hardly ever met them. When I was in college, one of my professors encouraged me to take a course they had in agricultural journalism. Well, it was the most ridiculous thing I could imagine, so I said, no, I'm not doing that. Well, my first job was at a small paper in in South Carolina working in their bureau in northeast Georgia, a very rural area uh, up near the South Carolina state line. And one of my first tasks was to cover uh, a drought that was uh, destroying farms all over the place. And so I walked the fields with a farmer, and he was destroyed. He was devastated. And his he didn't know how he's going to feed his family that 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 winter, and we stopped in the field, and he said, "I've got something here for you." And he took out his knife and he cut off his last watermelon off the vine, and he said, "I'd like you to take this because I just appreciate you listening to me." And I'm thinking at that point, number one, I really wish I'd gone back and taken that agricultural journalism class. But the second thing was. I understand now why this is something worth doing. That I've done lots of stories with gigantic issues and, and investigations and exposes and influencing public policy and all of those things. But to me it kind of came down to that that one guy who felt like finally somebody was gonna give him a voice. And that really changed how I looked at this entire profession. That's
3: amazing. It's a great story. And I, there are kind of two moments. One, as a as a, a young reporter, I mean, literally my first one of the first stories I covered at the Miami Herald. This is 1981. They're they're uh, Marielitos from Cuba that have just arrived. They're Haitians that are literally trying to find freedom in the U.S. And I was sent down to uh, Bayfront Auditorium, which is now where the American Airlines Center is, and completely developed now, but through interpreter, I had to interview these these families that had floated over in rickety boats and whatever to kind of, you know, find a place in asylum here in the U.S., particularly since uh, the the Haitian government, had kind of was going through its turmoil, and and lo and behold, gee, immigration policy was once again at the heart of U.S. discussions of do you grant asylum to political, you know, folks seeking political unrest, that stands out so clearly because that was, just like Randy's story, it's, it's, it's about the people you meet and talk to, uh, and as Jacqueline said, that kind of resonate with you over the years. Uh, and then I fast forward we're in, in my role in helping uh, Tom Joyner, the radio personality and his outreach, uh, we, we organized, we, we set up a petition tool on the website com that I'd help launch. And this petition too allowed he and Tom's you know, uh, political pundits to call to action his listeners to take on an issue. and so there were several no, several issues uh, where, where where Tom and his, his his pundits said "Write Congress and, and block." And then it was uh, several Supreme Court justices that they they uh, wanted to fight against. In other cases, it was, hey, we'd started a voter registration hotline and said, call and register to vote or, or get someone to vote. With the, the calling to the Congress, it, it, it was kind of a, an amazing thing that happened within the time, within a half hour, I would get a call from the, the chief administrative office of Congress saying, will you please tell your people to stop calling? <laughs> Uh, With voter registration lines, you know, with with our hotline, you know, we not only helped registered folks and people would call in, but on election and primary days, we would get people, you know, calling us in real time. Uh, And this was, you know, particularly in 08 when we had huge lines in in folks wanting to, to vote. And there were machines that were suddenly getting broken and... And hours uh, for election you know that we're certainly getting shortened and, be, and cutting people off our lines, so we will be getting that real- time data so that you know is 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 kind of the beauty of 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 uh, what I've loved to do I mean it's storytelling in various different ways how we get information how we engage people to find information uh, and I think uh the, the amazing thing is I think despite all the the rancor that's going on that that the the good part of what people want is the ability to tell their story, to tell it to people who will listen and to get that story out there and hopefully move people to make a change. And and if we can do that as, as journalism professors and we can inspire a generation of journalism professors to do that and then hopefully as a school really inspire other uh, you yeah, know, journalism schools and, and industry professionals to kind of, you know, rally around uh, the industry itself. Yeah, this, this uh, you yeah, know, journalism, media, you know, uh, it's needed more than ever.
0: Well, thank you all so much uh, for joining us today, and it was such a pleasure to hear your expertise and your stories. So, thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of UNT Pod. Let us know what other topics you'd like us to cover by connecting with us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT.